we can much more proactively challenge each other, leaders themselves, those around them to be more inclusive. And that's where we start to truly see the kind of innovation, the, the effectiveness, the stretching of current thinking and these whatever norms that used to be. After a weekend where we've seen traditional thinking and norms stretched and rewritten, we are bringing you an episode that focuses on inclusivity, on the employee-employee relationship, on the future of work and well-being. This is Tech Talks, your weekly tech podcast where we bring you the latest insight and thoughts from leaders across our industry. It's powered by Nash Squared and hosted by myself, David Savage. Amber, how was your Sunday afternoon? It was very good. I imagine it probably wasn't as good as yours, though, Dave. I, I got very lucky. I had a hunch. I bought a ticket a year ago, and, and my hunch turned out to be to be pretty accurate. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good hunch, to be fair. I can't say that I predict many things quite as good as what you've done there. So, yeah, good hunch. But like I say, I, I was very, very jealous. I was watching the game, and obviously it was amazing to watch it on the telly, but I... I know that's just never going to compare to the experience that you had. So I was incredibly jealous. Although you were at the semi-finals, Look, yes. um, for, for, for anyone who's wondering what on earth we're going on about, today's podcast is all about inclusion. Um, it's all about employee well-being, the employee-employee relationship. Uh, two interviews to bring you, one with The Clear Company and one with Juno. The Clear Company, the first one, it is all about inclusion and inclusive spaces. So where better to start our conversation today than talking about um, the English triumph in the women's Euros and what that might mean for uh, inclusion in terms of, of women being taken seriously, being able to play a sport that they love and having credibility. And, and to be perfectly frank, the role models that the England team uh, are providing. Like, I, I, I like Harry Kane. I love the English men's team. But I don't think that any of them will ever speak as eloquently as Leah Williamson did over this weekend. No, I completely agree. And I think just the whole team, just the way that they've like carried themselves throughout the whole tournament. Um, like you say, they just speak with, I, I don't know, they, they just really like conduct themselves in such a good way. They have a, such a genuine like passion for what they do. And every time they speak and they do interviews, that just comes across. So, yeah, I think obviously football to one side, like we should just be proud of them for really, you know, just kind of having that grit and that determination to get to the final to obviously win the game. But then also, I mean, yeah, the way they actually performed and the football was just completely like world-class. Like it was so, so good to watch. Um, yeah. Oh, the more I talk about Dave, the more jealous I get. So I have to, I have to stop, but no, it was, it was, yeah, it was so good to see. You know, one of the things that I loved on Sunday, um, so there's a couple of things. Um, first of all, the Germans were amazing like final whistle, waving their flags, dancing their way out the stadium to it's coming home, like amazing in defeat. So like mm. kudos, 
that that was amazing. that that's how sport should be yeah and i i only hope that if england lost the english fans had would hopefully i mean i think that crowd would have reacted in the same way but it was it was brilliant it was brilliant to see the kind of crowds i think that you get at cricket and rugby matches at a football match and and men's sport needs to learn a lot from that especially after the, the scenes from from over 12 months ago that don't need talking about anymore um but the other thing that was brilliant to see was grown men wearing the England women's shirt with women's players' names on their back. Mm. Like, if you told me that you would have seen like a 35, 40-year-old guy with Russo on his back five years ago, I would have gone, get get, get real, that's never going to happen. Yeah, and it's so nice for them as well that everyone's really like got behind them and backed them because um, I didn't know this actually. When I was watching the commentary the other day, um, I think they had like Alex Scott on there and a couple of old um, sort of England yeah. players. And they were saying, obviously, when they first started out, like they had to play, uh, sorry, they had to pay to play in these tournaments. They had to, um, you know, like they still had jobs, obviously, on, on the side. And I think some of the players now probably still do as well. So it was just completely different. So from where they started out and the experience they had and the fact that people didn't really take it too seriously or weren't too engaged with it, as you said, to now, like grown men wearing shirts with these women's names on the back. Like it's just such, yeah, I mean, it's such a, like a huge growth that there's been and, and and hopefully it only continues. And a lot of people are saying this is just the start. And I really hope this is just the start and people get more invested. People go to more games. Um, you know, it doesn't have to just be a major tournament for people to think, oh, those, those women are really good at what they do. And I'm going to go and watch them on a Saturday on a, you know, on a weeknight, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, one of my favourite quotes, I think, was from the weekend was someone kind of parodied, uh, they think it's all over and added, it's only just begun. Mm. And it was like, you know, that's that's the right way of looking at it. Yeah. Anyway, um, as we said, you got to go to a semi-final. So I did, I did, I know. It's not, I, I, <laughs> yeah, it's not all bad. But I mean, that was also a really good game. Again, atmosphere yeah. was great. So that's what you want, isn't it? Like no animosity, just people genuinely yep. there to enjoy the sport. And that's exactly, exactly. what it was and people being feeling included is as i said what we're going to be talking about first of all um anna from the clear company is our first guest we'll play this interview sorry for the slightly longer intro but you can in, forgive us our indulgences with uh with sunday and uh, myself and amber will be back afterwards with some thoughts and comments today i'm chatting to anna um anna you're the head of clear assured at the clear company you're also um, diversity inclusion director for for the voluntary organization women in tech part of the their global movement it's a pleasure to welcome you onto the podcast today thanks for making some time thank you dave great to be here uh where are we where are we finding you you're based in the uk right at the minute i am i am in currently sunny wembley oh well i'm gonna be I, to be honest i'm gonna be at wembley on sunday for england versus germany mm-hmm. the Women's gonna be quite a crazy time around here I, I i bet i bet absolutely whereabouts are you originally from i am from turku finland i'm not going to try and pronounce that i'll be honest i'm in <laughs> finland yes but <laughs> finland yes two hours from the capital helsinki very nice well look uh, again thanks for making some time to have a chat today um before we get into anything else what exactly do you do yeah um, so, I've got so many hats on, but first of all, my day job is at the Clear Company, which is a global diversity and inclusion consultancy. And my title, Head of Clear Research, means that I manage the global DNI standard. And that means that I support organizations of all sizes, from all sectors, 
uh, in their aims to create a more inclusive world of work and, and really focus on that authentic sense of belonging. So we give them a set of tasks and, and resources to get on that journey. Um, my work, my expertise is, is mostly, and, and to be honest, my passion as well in, in gender and LGBTQ plus inclusion. But I also recently I worked a lot on social mobility and neurodiversity. Um, we, of course, as disability confident leaders, as, as company, we, we focus, of course, on all strands of diversity. And my biggest kind of what I advocate hugely is on intersectionality and, and the actions around it. Um, meaning, yes, I might identify as a woman, but there's so much more to us. Uh, there's so many other lived experiences, whether it's through faith and religion, sexual orientation, age, nationality, education, all those strands. Mm -hmm. And then the other hat that I have on, which links very, very closely to this, is the uh, women in tech work. And that's really looking at, well, all of our kind of DNI actions, our global committee, um, and recently, a lot also events and public speaking, raising awareness, doing partnerships, some internal talent acquisition and, and policy work as well. The intersectionality point is a really interesting one, because if I think about the industry, we obviously have, you know, wider society, we have Pride, we have Black History Month, we have, you know, so many different days, months, focuses on one particular aspect mm -hmm. of of a challenge and if I think about organizations that's often reflected I, I think about our own organization we have a women's group we have an LGBTQIA plus group we tend to operate in these silos whilst trying to fix the challenges around DE and I mm -hmm. do, do you think that's changing I mean if you think about the latest thinking and expertise around DNI. What trends do you see emerging and where are organizations beginning to focus attention? Yeah, I, I think it is changing. The whole kind of narrative, first of all, whose job EDNI is, um, is changing. Um, the kind of intersectionality has increased more of the awareness and really kind of going out to those communities to understand more of those lived experiences. So I think kind of it's, it's not just seen anymore as this kind of nice, nice to have. Um, it's much more of a kind of business critical, crucial performance and innovation related business function that literally links to everything that we stand for, everything that we do as, as a business. And obviously the, the businesses who have realized all the benefits, they, they are very much aware of the business case. They want, they need to have more representation. They understand the need for a sense of belonging. That's creating more of these psychological spaces for all kinds of employees, which then links very directly to better morale, well-being, productivity, more attractive brand, like all these, all these things that we've learned and, and researched on. So definitely that's that's one of the biggest trends that I'm I'm seeing. The kind of narrative changing. Um, it doesn't sit within HR. It doesn't sit just within recruitment teams. It's literally everybody's responsibility to, to you know, be, be an ally, be a champion. Everybody has to be um, involved so that it actually translates to the business operations. Obviously, still, yes, there's so much work that we need to do in terms of kind of recruitment and retention policy strategies that does play a big part but it's even more about how do we live our own values? How do we hear from those backgrounds that are different to ours? How do we create those inclu inclusive spaces to have these kind of healthy debates and 
open conversation, not only to get our own house in order, but actually how do we go out to the wider community? How do we influence our customers and suppliers as well? So you talk there about creating inclusive spaces. I mean, how far along the inclusion journey are most organizations? Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's such a variety. And obviously I work with so many different sectors. Um, I'm also quite biased because I'm head of ClearAssure, so I look after the accreditation process. Mm -hmm. But if we look at kind of most successful organizations, you know, looking at like, I don't know, big recruitment agency, Michael Page, looking at HS2, massive uh, construction projects, those are the ones that have been on the journey for so many years. And it's now about being able to evidence all that work that they put in. So there's certain policies, there's certain policies that are very much underpinning the DNI strategy. They can evidence that there is much more of an awareness and an actual maturity when it comes to leadership. So there's, you know, much more in-depth knowledge of, of issues. Uh, leadership is much more confident in actively supporting those underrepresented groups. Um, and it's more kind of working around the ideology that actually everything that we do is based on that diverse talent being included in all the aspects of operational performance. Um, we can much more proactively challenge each other, leaders themselves, those around them to be more inclusive. And that's where we start to truly see the kind of innovation, the, the effectiveness, the stretching of current thinking and these whatever norms that used to be, but also then around kind of corporate citizenship, understanding the link between DNI um, and well-being, and going way beyond the kind of if, if we're talking UK terms and kind of nine protected characteristics. Most of my clients or maturity are um, pretty much on this kind of silver level. So they understand the strategy. Um, they've got some, you know, key objectives. Um, what does success look like for them? They might have some KPIs. They're really tracking that achievement continuously um, and yeah more more kind of actively engaged and it's not just this kind there's, there's much more momentum uh, beyond being compliant with the quality law or, or any kind of contractual requirements um, yeah I think tech tech is a very interesting uh, and very potential you know leader in this in this field because there's so much more innovation there's mm. kind of agility there's lots of skills that not existed before so there's a different appetite for for change in in general in my opinion out of interest you said there that it kind of the the, the boardroom or the with, within leadership rather maybe not even the boardroom but within leadership roles you know this all gets sparked from healthy debate and challenges amongst leaders through women in tech, you know, I'm really fortunate to go to those conferences and those events. And you get a slightly skewed um, perspective because you see so many incredible leaders from those communities that we're talking about in the room and, and being so vocal and so so positive. But obviously, that's that's not actually the reality for, for, for many organizations. What stops those conversations happening in, in leadership circles? What What do organizations need to unblock to make sure that they they actually happen yeah good good question um to be honest i think there's the the, the whole kind of dni landscape has changed quite a bit in the even past five years even two years even the conversations that i have through women in tech are are getting more curious and kind of challenging but there's a lot of kind of fear of me doing things 
wrong in, in a sense. Like at the end of the day, you can have all the policies and procedures in place, but if we're not changing our mindsets and attitudes, then we're kind of putting ourselves to to fail. Um, I feel like there's more, which can be kind of a good thing and bad thing, but there's much more competition and kind of pressure for everyone to be an expert on all things EDNI. And that can get quite defensive and it can come across kind of more policing. Um, and that's actually the worst thing for me that happens because then that kind of silences the whole conversation. Then actually then no change happens because it all feels so overwhelming and we don't know what exact thing we should be doing and focusing on. And if we focus on this group, then we're not focusing on the other group. And, uh, you know, this this work is also very emotional and, you know, emotive and we all have our own lived experiences that have effect on this. And I just think that we have to change these mindsets first, that it's first of all, okay to fail. Like it's okay to trial and error and, and do like try different things because that's what continuous learning is about and, and, and sharing more of that vulnerability that, Hey, I actually don't know like everything. Um, mm. And yeah, we should just be a bit more, empathy empath empathetic and curious i guess where we're measuring this because it's difficult to know take your policy example i've been i've been privy to conversations where signing a document putting a process in place is celebrated as a win but it doesn't necessarily change an organization what are the metrics that you can point to that go Right, here's, here's an organization on the right path. This, divine, this defines success. Yeah. Um, first of all, it's absolutely all about that impact. Um, it's, it's, of course, depends because each organization looks what, what, what does success mean for them is, is different to everybody. But the most important thing is that we do it in a data-driven, in an evidence-based way. So obviously the first thing is always about the data collection and how do we analyze it? What sort of insights can we draw from this? And this this can be quantitative and qualitative and we can understand where the potential gaps and barriers are. So um, seeing the kind of improvements in terms of, you know, what, what does our demographic data look like? What, what does that tell us? What is the representation currently? Where do we want to be in six months, 12 months, 18 months? Who are the people that currently are successful, for example, within our recruitment assessment process or looking at, you know, who who are we retaining in this business? Then from the policy side of things, you can see the impact and, and the um, the kind of uh, improvements when when you look at how, how progressive are these policies, actually. Have we reviewed them with post-Brexit, post-pandemic? Not sure if we're post-pandemic yet, but getting there. Are they reflecting the current best practice and, and being realistic for future work. There's also matrices that we can look at in terms of kind of inclusion index. So how included do our employees feel? When, when's the last time we actually did some focus groups or, I don't know, stakeholder interviews to, to hear from those groups? What, um, what percentage of, of our people feel like they have the true sense of belonging? Uh, do they feel like they're valued and listened to? And then we can start comparing that. Um, and then there might be things that people say in our exit interviews. So is, is there anything that we can draw from, from an inside perspective? Um, obviously, we can look at uh, things like accessibility. So how accessible are just our offices? Do we have any physical barriers? 
Do we have, can we look at percentages of bathrooms that are gender neutral? What's the, um, maybe we can look at reasonable adjustments or kind of workplace accommodations. What's the percentage of, of those being offered? What can we improve in that? And then again, it links to the kind of brand awareness or, or kind of employer brand, employee value proposition, but also what do our clients and suppliers think of our brand? What are they saying today? And, and then look back in, in six months time. Um, yeah, lo- lots of things there. We can look at performance data. What does that say? Um, is it, are we rewarding the right employees for their contribution? Have we identified the trends where maybe rewards are typically granted for just particular people over others? And of course, um, benchmarking, um, different accreditations. How are we doing against our competitors, clients? Uh, we can look at how are we doing within our sector and, and beyond. We can look at how are we as an organization doing in the UK compared to our international offices, for example. Mm-hmm. I want to finish this interview by asking, as a professional in this space, what your aspirations are for the industry. And before I hear what your aspirations are, I just want to put forward my view and see what see what you think. Yes, please. Because you, you talked about intersectionality, and I think it's really interesting, that idea that we are all so much more than just one thing. And I remember going to web summit maybe six years ago and there was a there was a talk there for uh women in technology it wasn't ran by women in technology it was just a talk about women in tech and um it was for women only and i got the 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 need for it but i still instinctively felt a little bit excluded and i think in the past where we've talked about de and i when we break those communities down into individual silos they can feel a little bit us against them at times. Mm-hmm. Whereas I suppose if we're thinking about things from an intersectionality point of view, yes, I am I am white, I am straight, I am cisgender, I am, you know, male, all of these things mm-hmm. that make me uber privileged, but equally my dad is transgender, my brother in law is gay, I come from a family that's very liberal and very diverse, and there is so much more than just one box that I can be put into. Yeah. And I suppose when you do that, it helps you kind of it helps you feel that everyone everyone has an aspect of a community that they are in or they are close to. Mm-hmm. And if I, I suppose if we all see ourselves in that, that extent, then it can help us be more supportive, perhaps, of those communities that we're not as closely involved in and, and, and in gender environment that fosters allyship more naturally. That's kind of how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you'd say to that, but equally, I'd love to know what what you would hope happens over the next few years. Yeah, I love that. I've, I've, got, I've always had kind of mixed feelings about labels. And even for me, like nowadays I'm okay saying I'm a queer person, but I never like the label of LGBTQ plus and where do I fit in and all these kind of things. So I, I've got sort of mixed emotions about that personally. I think it's just that curiosity to, to hear and learn more. Like I just like to see more empathy and kindness and it's it kind of gets into more sort of philosophical psychological stuff but of course then that will link us being braver and and braver in safe psychologically safe spaces to have those conversations and then that will leave us to more disruption for all of us which then in a bigger bigger picture will lead to much more social justice and change to the better obviously for all of us um I want to see more choice. I want to see 
everybody being able to truly be themselves if they wish, like if at work, if you wish to be yourself, that's obviously a choice as well. Because I just see the link to better mental health, better well-being in more general. So there's kind of like this kind of like ladder of accountability. We 100% need to be able to call out bad behaviors, look at those non-inclusive behaviors, reflect what needs to happen, take accountability, but also still exactly not getting too siloed and like it's too scary to be talking about different things that are, you know, emotional and and, and sometimes traumatic and all, all these kind of things. Um, so more people I see... Uh, being involved, having conversations, raising awareness—that's um, that's what I think is going to be like this kind of ongoing work that will truly continue, like definitely for the rest of my life. But hopefully, like more—I I see even like more representation, and even my goddaughter who is eight years old, like the the conversation is so different when it comes to I don't know, like even like trans inclusion, like it's just. That's that's what keeps me going, and it's like okay, we we've, we've got lots of things to do, but we also need to reflect and look where we come from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, quick one. Uh, if someone wants to find out more about the Clear Company, how would they? Um, they can reach out to me um, via email or LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Uh, my email. So we should we should say Anna A double N A Mackinen. Your spelling on LinkedIn is M A K. I mean, it has a it has a, an accent over the A, but M A K I N E N will find you, even if it's not got the accent. And yes, the, yes, they will. Yes, <laughs> cool. So LinkedIn uh, is a good way to get in touch. Yeah, that's correct. Cool. Thank you very much for your time today, and thank you for sharing some of your insights on a on a very complex but evolving area. Thank you so much, David, and also thank you so much for your allyship. Right. What what stood out to you from this? Oh, a couple of things. But I think the first thing was what she said about um, like that that sort of journey that organisations have been on, and the mm-hmm. fact that she was saying it's not just like a nice to have now. Obviously, to have like a good kind of diversity and inclusive sort of program and and structure to the organisation. Um, and I, I think that's the way it used to be looked at in a sense, wasn't it? It was almost like a tick box exercise of like will put this content out. And I'm not saying this is, you know, every organisation, um, but it was almost like we'll put this content out to look as though we're sort of, you know, following this agenda or we're hitting this quota or whatever it may be. Um, but, you know, I suppose those practices, were they really kind of embedded in the company and, you know, did were employees aware of that? Were employees sort of treated, you know, completely as equals? Um, I'm not too sure if that were the case, but now it seems that people are really taking this seriously they're really obviously, you know, they're coming to her for help on how they can sort of build upon this, um, you know, their sort of inclusivity in the workplace and, and sort of just make that stronger and make it a better place for everybody. So I think that was kind of one of the main things that stood out is just the changes in like in attitudes around this sort of stuff as well. Yeah, and it was interesting that she kind of linked that to technology as well by saying that tech gives you the agility and more appetite for change. I thought that was quite heartening because sometimes I wonder why why is it that this industry is changing perhaps quicker than others and and i think that the the fact that it's underpinned by something that is in a constant state of flux in itself is is its kind of superpower to be able to change and gives you hope that 
the the barriers that do exist in technology and the disparity that we see in gender and from access from from ethnic minority groups and so on or minority groups rather um can hopefully change and move mm-hmm. yeah no definitely like you say it's um it's just acting as a bit of a catalyst isn't it like speeding it up just um yeah helping with that kind of process and i guess as the world's sort of going digital like it seems as though people will obviously use tech just to enhance these processes um yeah i, I think like I say that whole kind of first half to the conversation i found really really interesting because like I said, she referred to it as like a, a nice to have or organisation saw it as a nice to have. And um, yeah, definitely that's not the case anymore. It seems to be people genuinely taking this seriously, um, which is good, which is obviously what we want. Right. So, yeah, I found that really sort of interesting. And I guess, um, like I say, technology will always play a part in that. It's I don't know too many pieces of tech that I can sort of think of that would help with this I don't know if, if that's me to be really naive but I, do, I can't when she says obviously tech will underpin that like what what sort of tech will what 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 do you think she was referring to well I just think it's the fact that technology gives gives you the the, the ability to to be agile um and co- collect data and be more scientific about it you know um when she talks about or when she talks in the interview about inclusive spaces and can you evidence um <clears throat> real change and she talks about policy underpinning processes well those policies the right policies are already going to be put in place if you really understand your organization mm. and and being able to capture that and and use it in a positive way is is going to help uh, and she talks about leadership having knowledge and confidence and again that knowledge and confidence is going to come from better understanding um you know there's there's a lot of organizations who might have workers who aren't sat at a desk in front of a computer who might be slightly more removed they might be frontline workers and if you are unable to understand how they're feeling or unable to communicate to them then they're going to feel locked out and it's not going to be an inclusive organization and technology those there are platforms that can help reach these people yeah no good point good point I haven't really thought of that like say all the sort of the the data and stuff as well that kind of backs up all these arguments or kind of gives you that sort of insight into how employees are feeling um I mean we sort of see it obviously in our job like day to day as well don't we sort of like around you know trying to or working with organizations where they're obviously trying to bring more people into the team like um we get a lot of organizations for ask for like gender balance shortlists or obviously more sort of diverse shortlists as well so it seems like a real kind of big push in this area um and, and, and rightfully so, because obviously, I guess a lot of people in tech teams, there's not sort of too many women in tech teams. Obviously, majority of those positions more often than not go to men, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I think it's really good as well that she talks about leadership teams being challenged. Yeah, I think that's the way I feel like with um, with most things is just kind of how we progress, isn't it? It's like challenging opinions or just like challenging these these types of things so we don't just kind of get comfortable. And I think when organisations become comfortable it's like that's when you're not um, sort of pushing the boundaries or sort of, you know, actually kind of moving in the right direction or becoming sort of forward thinking. And I think that's that's what we need, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, I think we will shift gear into our second interview, which was, which is with Juno and Ali, who joins us from Barcelona. Um, this is... This is moving away slightly from inclusion, but more to the employee-employee relationship, talking about choices and the future of work. But there's a lot in here that does stem to inclusive behaviours and well-being and understanding of financial well-being or health 
mental health. So I think there's a there's a lovely natural link between the two interviews today. But um, stay tuned for that. Amber, thanks for joining me to to have a chat, and uh, I'm glad that you're able to revel in the victory at the weekend. <laughs> thanks, Dave. So today I'm talking to Ali. Ali, you are. Uh, founder, let's double check this actually. Co-founder or founder? No, founder, aren't you, Juno? Yes. Just you on your own? Yeah, so so my my surname is difficult to pronounce, so it's Ali Fakeki, like cake. Well, notice I avoided that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, don't worry. <laughs> 30 years, almost 31 years of that experience, so it's not, it's not, it's not, uh, not, not no surprises. It's difficult uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I bottled, I bottled it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ali, Ali Fakeki, founder, sole founder of Juno, yeah. Before we go get into anything else, then um, let's let's have a general overview and introduction in your own words of, of who Juno are. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the founder and CEO of Juno. Juno's mission is to empower healthier, happier workplaces by connecting employees to better choices. I think traditionally companies have you know been very well-meaning and and, and well-intentioned trying to improve the well-being of their staff. Um, Unfortunately, traditionally, those implementations have not always been very uh, well executed. And I think that it comes down to a couple of things, or three things in our mind. One of them is not being tailored enough, so not being uh, personalizable. Um, they also require employees to come out of pocket, which we try and solve with Juno by allowing employers to fund um, an allowance for employees. And thirdly, they haven't been able to provide enough power and flexibility to employees to make their own decisions. They've been quite set. So with those three ways, Juno uh, provides the ability for employees to make their own decisions on what matters to them at work. We have a marketplace platform that allows them to pick and choose what makes them happy uh, in 71 countries and counting so far. So that's what Juno's mission is to improve the lives of working people by connecting them to better choices. And in terms of those companies that are signing up and using the platform, if you don't mind me asking, what, what does that company typically look like? I sure. I might make an assumption here, but um, I, it'd just be interesting to know what the profile of a lot of your, of your customers is. Sure. So we are very much focused on small businesses. So between 15 and 200 people in size is our, our sort of sweet spot. We want to allow sort of small businesses to have big benefits. A lot of our clients uh, founded businesses after having worked in corporates with very large people teams that could provide them with everything under the sun. But they then go and start their own company and want to attract the top talent, uh, but without the resources. So we give uh, small businesses. I mean, we've got teams of less than five people. We've got teams. Um, that have just recently raised funding. We've got teams that have been in business for 35 years, but they've all got three things in common. So one of them is that they are modern, they are progressive, they think um, uh, kind of about the, the latest uh, culture trends and, and, and they are embracing the future of work in, in, in as many ways as they can. They are mid-sized, so like I said, medium-sized, so they're kind of uh, between 15 and, and, and 200, as I said. So. They aren't um, corporates by any stretch, although we do have a couple of corporate clients. Uh, and then they are multinational, a lot of them. So uh, a lot of our clients have multiple locations. So uh, they might be HQ'd in London, but they might have people uh, in, uh, in the Netherlands like we do, or they might be people in Spain or Portugal like we have. 
um, you know, we we really kind of allow those remote or distributed teams or companies with multiple locations to provide a, a, a great well-being um, support um, structure. Uh, and providing results, look, I, I have a background in recruitment, providing choices when you're a smaller employee is expensive. Is, is that where the, the power of the marketplace comes in to allow you to be able to find discounts, make those available cheaper? How, how does it work in terms of making it cost effective? Well, being that well-being is sort of the, the, the latest, let's say, intersectional trend, well-being, culture, future work, there are so many amazing businesses that uh, you know, for example, businesses that do financial well-being, businesses that do meditation, businesses that do breathwork, businesses that do all sorts of, you know, from gyms to nutrition to everything in between. So what Juno tries to do is bring them all under one roof so that a small business doesn't have to worry about procure, procuring a million and one different vendors, but also, you know, that they don't have to worry about making everybody happy you know um with juno an employee can get a headspace membership uh and their, their colleague can get a therapy on demand or uh you know a uh, stressed out manager can get their house cleaned uh through the platform so we've, we've got everything under one roof and of course yeah through through our collective uh, sort of size and all of our clients we are able to give discounts that might not be available uh on 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 the market and does, how beneficial is that flexibility with regards to the fact that, you know, I think, think you said that you're available in over 70 countries or you have clients in 70 countries? We have people using Juno in over 71 countries. People, people using Juno in over 71 countries. Um, are there trends there in terms of, you might have someone, as you said, in the Netherlands, in Spain, in Portugal, maybe you've got people in the UK. You mentioned financial well-being or you mentioned therapy or maybe it's exercise where you're beginning to see that if you're in a certain country... Actually, there's there's more of a migration towards a certain type of choice over another, or is there not such a clear yeah, picture? Yes and I, no. Yes and no. And I think that, that, that one of the things that influences it is that the, the clients that we've got are generally US, UK, or, or, or sort of Western Europe based. So okay. those cultures in and of themselves are fairly similar, which means that though people that work for them are you know, often assimilate into that culture. So actually, the benefits that are used across those 71 countries tend to follow similar trends. Uh, there's no sort of, um, because we don't have purely Brazilian clients that speak Portuguese, um, you know, we don't see, for example, a massive culture shift in benefits uptake, for example, because our clients are US, UK, English-speaking um, that being said, what, what surprised us definitely and, and kind of one of the validations of Juno as a, as a concept is that, you know, you, you would think that if you give everybody the choice and also, you know, it's important to note the way that it works is clients give uh, their staff an allowance. Uh, that's sort of the important basis on which Juno works. You know, the average is about £40 a month per person to spend on their well-being. Now, you'd be surprised that actually, uh, you know, Traditionally, when we think about well-being, uh, we think about three, two or three things. Generally, it's uh, sort of health and fitness, mental health, um, and uh, you know, like a Eastern Eastern medicine. So things like yoga and meditation and breath work, which are all great things. But actually, what we found is most people, when given the allowances, they kind of flock towards what we would call lifestyle support. So uh, those with children will go 
and use their allowance towards childcare, for example. Uh, those, you know, uh, bachelors like myself would focus on things like house cleaning or laundry pickup. You know, these are things that actually um, give people time back. They don't take time away. But also we're meeting people where they are. You know, most people aren't great at self-care. Uh, you know, I'm a few pounds overweight. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people that wish that they were um, more mentally healthy, uh, you know, more, um, you know, self, self-care in general is something that we don't, you know, we don't, we don't champion in and of ourselves. So we allow people to meet people where they are by giving them access to things that could help in their everyday um, and obviously they still have access to the meditation, the therapy, the breath work, the yoga, but we kind of see well-being more of a, of a ladder. Um, and that is an interesting trend that we've seen is that people start with the house cleaning and then they kind of go, OK, uh, maybe I'll get a massage. And then that, that sort of progresses over time uh, and people start you know, indulging in meditation and, and mindfulness and so on. I suppose then it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because as you collect more data, you might be able to turn around to organisations and go, "We're looking at the makeup of your of your population, your community. These are the kind of companies that actually might offer um, the the choices that your your people may may be looking for." Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think you know one of the issues that we have, the issues that, that most companies have is that they do collect a lot of data on 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 culture you know their employee mps their employee satisfaction productivity but they're, they're sort of there's there's this kind of and what factor mm-hmm. um you know there is for example put it in another way there are a lot of like these fintech companies that will analyze your spending and tell you what you spent your money on and, and where you're sort of spending a lot of money on for example which might be eating out but there, there lacks this kind of so what factor of right what do i need to do and why is this an issue and i think that a lot of these uh culture analytics platforms mental health platforms that do a lot of data digging they're wonderful but what, what juno wants to do is to give companies a sort of resolution beyond that which is you know for example a lot of your staff are spending their points on mental health and kind of having a deeper, more sort of three or four dimensional look at how a company, how a company can translate that um, and what they can do in the future to kind of improve outcomes and, and culture and productivity. I think that is something that we would love to, 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 to be able to link up that data with, with a sort of so what factor. Now, before I hit record, you said that you don't like talking about perks and benefits. You like talking about choices Mm. obviously culturally i suppose across the industry as a whole maybe this is influenced by the fact that i have talked to many corporates over the years we do talk about work perks and and benefits and people talk about benefits when they're talking about job opportunities why is it that those terms don't sit easily with you well look i mean it's a it's a term that is a little bit to me flippant considering how important it is to get this bit right. I think we've, we've transitioned away from tick boxing. Uh, you know, if you look at um, some of our clients and, and the challenges that they have and the prospects that we can't, that come, you know, employees, their staff are under a lot of pressure. I mean, you know, pandemic, costs of living, um, uh, you know, just those two in of themselves, recession, you know, th- to add a third one, um, 
that's a lot of pressure on 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 the average you know professional and what we need is to think about these things less as perks or less as kind of benefits with a capital B and consider how powerful and how vital they really are because we're dealing with people's lives you know we, we are you know when you consider the impact that an employer can have on the parenting um, quality of one of their employees by giving them access to childcare or giving them access to support in some way that's so much more than perks it's so much bigger than perks it's it's not enough to call them perks um, you know I think 10 years ago when things seemed a little bit rosier and and you know people were able to increase their salaries and keep up with inflation as my as as meager as it was um, you know I think that was fine to call them perks and, and they really were perks they were just kind of sprinkles on top of a a pretty good cake but now um life is heavier things are heavier things are harder you know the pandemic um accelerated a lot of ideals uh wage stagnation has been going on for decades and now we are in a recession where cost of living is becoming absurd and i think companies need to look at it less as perks and, and, and more as things that really, really do have an impact and that they are pretty fairly serious, serious subjects that can have a, a huge impact on their staff. So where do you see the kind of the direction of travel, generally speaking, for, for the industry? You're talking to a lot of companies as they're growing. I suppose you're getting a sense of what people are looking for. You've spoken a little bit about kind of meeting people where they are. How do you think the future of work, as it were, and and the relationship between employees and employers, employees and employers rather, might develop. Yeah, I think it's quite trendy right now, which means that there'll be a lot of sort of tokenism. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of quote-unquote corporate wellness, corporate well-being platforms that don't seem to do anything uh, really. Uh, so, what I mean by that is, you know, because it's such a hot topic, there'll be a lot of players coming up. Um, out of the woodwork or being created that are trying to lure the, the dollar or the pound from employers who are very concerned. You know, that's what we've seen in, in the last three years since the pandemic, you know, nearly three years, is that companies really waking up to the idea that they've really got to put their best foot forward and make an investment in their people. However, there have been a lot of full storms and full starts. You know, what we're trying to achieve here is a really meaningful um, implementation of something that actually helps people rather than just sort of ticking a box, right? So uh, we don't want companies just to think of the first platform that they can think of and say, well, we've got wellness sorted. It's actually, what impact will this genuinely have? We're going to spend the money, you know, if you're going to do it, do it. You know, if you're going to you might as well not do it if you're going to just put, you know, £5 per person per month on a platform that no one's ever going to, access, get going to access so that you can say that you've got something in place, you know. And therefore, for us, it's asking employers, right, okay, well, if you do actually want to do this, what are your objectives? Yeah, do you want to actually have an impact? What are your objectives here? And for us, it's about having a genuinely meaningful impact. Um, that's going to have a, a, an end, you know, an end result for you and I as employees. So hopefully, I mean, I think 
in the in the short term there'll be a lot of false dawns there'll be a lot of trendy things that come up you know from platforms to methods to you know um you know experiments let's call them uh, but actually in the end hopefully you know our our method which is just giving employees the choice and flexibility and giving them access to great to great things services and products uh that will be the the, the end the end result in the medium and long term now you're in spain yes you've got a dog where you're working yes you've got very much the kind of the the founder startup lifestyle by the sounds of it there how do you see juno um growing you mentioned that you've got staff what in spain portugal and netherlands how do you see your own business uh evolving over the the next few months and and possibly longer yeah so our goal is to maximize the well-being of global professionals um you know we want to look back and go we changed the method you know we 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 came at a time where employers were prescribing benefits and of course they weren't getting the solution that they wanted because it was too uh it was too rote it was too uh yeah like i said prescribed and our goal is to to look back in 10 years or 15 years and go we changed the method we changed the way that uh employers viewed this now of course uh from a internal and business perspective let's say um you know our goal is to we are venture backed our goal is to raise more money uh to 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 hit a series a round of funding um in the next sort of 12 months we just closed a seed round uh which was uh, led by Hoxton Ventures a great london based vc we are very much uh keen on internationalization especially moving out to the states uh we do have american clients but i think america is definitely uh, you know the US is definitely a market that we would like to be to be a lot more integrated in and within um but yeah i mean look keep on keep on trucking is basically the the goal for us i think the the current um market hasn't really affected us because we're not sort of this extremely overvalued and extremely well funded companies like we've seen in the past in the last year that unfortunately have had to lay people off and um sort of I suppose victims of their own success and and a lot of VC money. So we're very fortunate not to have to be in that sticky situation, but I think the market has changed a lot from a venture funding perspective. Uh you know, we're we're really focused on building our fundamentals and and building a great business and I don't think we're going to go wrong by just kind of keeping things um rolling for the next sort of 2 years uh, and hopefully in between that we raise a, another round of funding. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um I hope that you enjoy the rest of your week given that we're recording early Thank on Tuesday on a Monday rather Monday, yes. I'm wishing the week away already so it's probably beginning of the week uh and uh fingers crossed we'll catch up with you with you in in the future and see how you're getting on thanks so much Dave I really appreciate it and I appreciate your time 